Welcome to the Spike Feed, your leading Magic the Gathering podcast. What is up? My name is Curtis, and I'm just your typical Spike. On the line with me, my good buddy, producer extraordinaire, and pull focus enthusiast, Cameron McCoy. <laughs> really rocking that depth of field today, Cameron. What's going on there? I, I swapped out the 35 for a 50 millimeter lens, so you're going to get a, like more of my head. So I apologize to you and to the listeners. Yeah, because <laughs> yeah, um, they're just imagining the background being out of focus. Cameron, I know there's a 0% chance you watched any of the NFL, but they're doing this new camera technique where the players are super in focus and then... You know, the, the the crowd is essentially out of focus. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, in the past, everything was, like, super sharp. And they're trying this, and I don't know who came up with this idea, but it's terrible. Like, I don't know <laughs> if they just think it looks more cinematic or whatever. Mm-hmm. But to me, the whole point of sports television is to feel like you're there, right? Yeah. Um, and I am not excessively, you know, nearsighted or something. Like, what are we doing? It's terrible. It's terrible. I 100% agree, dude. Like, NFL films, retrospectives, sure. Give me that shallow depth of field. Make it feel cinematic. Otherwise, it's live television, man. Just 60i, you know, small centered chips on a camera. Okay, we're getting really deep into the woods, but just make it look like sports. <laughs> yeah, it looks it looks real bad. And I, yeah. I mean, I'm sure theoretically there's somebody out there that's listening to this who's also a big football fan and has noticed this too, but it's especially noticeable when they do that because they always do the quarterback runs out to the huddle for the first snap of the game. And it's like, it's just a blurry mess behind them. Mm -hmm. And it's like, yes, I get that they do this in Call of Duty, but that's because they're trying to create a cinematic (laughs) effect. Yep. You know, it just feels so artificial. It just is like someone put a bad Instagram filter on my NFL game. Whatever. (laughs) We're here to talk about magic, Cameron. Um, Dude, what's up? What's up? So, Magic, we're in we're in the final week of Oof. Throne of Eldraine, Icoria. Um, I, I would say I officially have senioritis with regards to those sets. <laughs> I'm like, whatever, man. I'm not even showing up today. Um, I want to hear from you, man. Like, what have you been up to with regards to Magic? Well, unlike you, I am showing up to the last final days of classes, okay? <laughs> nice, nice. Uh, really, I mean, just, I'm still playing some standard, um, still, I guess, but I'm playing blue-red control, uh, I'm playing Sultai control, I'm playing, like, these decks that, like, I'm not going to ever have an opportunity to play it again. I'm not nostalgic. I'm not misty-eyed in the least. It's just something to kind of do and just kind of reanalyze where are we at, what has been good, what has been bad. Um, yeah, I mean, overall, Throne of Eldraine, thumbs down. Uh, Ikoria, thumbs down. However, standard, you know, moderate, middling thumbs up. Uh, so... It's such a weird thing to have such disdain for some of these like sets, specifically the cards within those sets. But overall, they somehow managed to find relative balance and decentness within within the set as a, with these sets as a whole in the context of standard. Um, there's, I mean, absolutely nothing new to report. Sultai Control, best deck. Blue Red Control. There's a lot of this that's going to be in standard 2022 or whatever the new standard we're going to call standard is going to be next week. Um, so there we have it. 
Yeah, we got so in the weeds with what was banned and not banned. I don't know exactly what standard was initially intended to look like. Because, mm. like, Wilderness Reclamation would be gone right now, right? But, like, yeah. Oka would be in. Yeah. Oka. So, they're like, Fires of uh, Invention would be in. And the Companions would be just cast them from the Companion Zone. So, yeah, what a weird... I would have loved to known at this point when they were testing standard if they've done the Joe uh, Bluth like I've made a huge mistake <laughs> yeah, or they were just like man this is sweet this is all balanced because there is a theoretical world where all that broken stuff together created some level of high powered balance a la legacy I don't think it's possible but it could have been um, it probably was just possible within their small sample size right mm-hmm, of mm-hmm. their testing um, I mean, I've just been messing around with the cube, and that's been fun enough for me, and I've done decently. Maybe maybe I always force the blink deck, Cameron, and I don't think I need judgment for that. I blink stuff, and it's sick and a lot of fun. <laughs> um, I, I, I feel like we're kind of harping on the negative things about Arena. Um, I feel like we've also, maybe just by virtue of us kind of stepping out of Historic for a little bit, have missed so much of the conversation with these new cards, but the mm-hmm. vibe on Twitter has been quite negative. I guess the Tybalt's Trickery deck has gotten even better. Many people are irritated with that. Also, I, Davriel, who you'll recall was the Planeswalker with 20 bulleted items or 16 yep. bulleted items. Apparently, there's no way to log it to know what was chosen after it's been chosen. So it all just kind of Great happens. <laughs> yeah. And, and again, it continues to beg the question, why did all this happen in the timetable that it did? Mm-hmm. Again, to be a fly on the wall and understand the plan. I'm not saying there's not a plan, but it just feels a little duct taped together, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so here's what I did, Cameron. And, I, and again, whenever we talk about Flesh and Blood, I definitely want to talk about it within the context of how it's affecting magic. You're not going to listen to this show and hear a Flesh and Blood strategy moment with Curtis, Right, I just feel like it's taken up so much of the mind space and so much of what's going on in the magic community that we've got to talk about it. So here's what I did. I somewhat know how to play the game, but the card shop that's the closest to me, which I don't typically frequent, they were having a free get a starter deck, learn how to play experience. Okay. Okay. So I show up to this and there are 16 people there. And they have a video that you're supposed to show this event. And Cameron, they handed me I mean, a full-on... Everybody got the same starter, but it was a 40-card, like, actual starter deck. Not a, like, Duel of the Planeswalkers kind of thing, but just mm-hmm. like a... I mean, it's not super competitive, but it's definitely not nothing. And they were like, here you go. Here's your deck. So it's like, you guys produced a video, and you printed a starter deck for everyone for this event, right? Mm-hmm. And I explained to my wife this with amazement. And she was like, why wouldn't you always do that? <laughs> and I'm like, I want to tell you about how Wizards of the Coast typically treats. Okay, Curtis, we're going to just break this down in terms of the Kansas City, Missouri DMV versus the Iowa DMV, okay? Right. It's yeah, essentially like it. the same thing where, like, I mean, 
you want a free bottle of water? You know, are you standing in line? Do you want it to just feel like kind of stylish? Come to Iowa. I mean, it's not going to be as good, you know, maybe as like the Kansas City OG original, but like your time is really well spent in this uh, in this Iowa DMV of flesh and blood. <laughs> I I, mm, I can't really come up with a positive thing to say about a Missouri DMV. Suffice to say, I've spent upwards of six hours in the DMV over the past three months between oh, my wife yep, and exactly. myself. Exactly. Okay. So, um, <laughs> where don't you get to renew like online? I know we're getting into super y- y- dad yes, talk. Yes, you can. <laughs> yeah, cool, 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 cool. Um, it's totally great and seems really fair. Um, anyway, so yes, <laughs> it was just it. No, it it was just like that, and it was incredible to play these people and I don't this isn't my shop so I don't really know a lot of these guys and to hear them learn it and talk about it there was one guy not into it from the jump he was so I'm confused this is a waste of time like instantly Mm. just downgrading this whole thing and I've kind of seen this among some magic players and it kind of like I feel like I just need to print a shirt brand loyalty is for suckers right stop it the best, like, I get it if you don't like Flesh and Blood and you try it, that's fine. But just going into basically talk crap on it from the word go all the way till you learning to play it is kind of a bummer, right? But I see this a lot. People saying things like, you know, this card game can never be successful. There's no game that's been more successful than Magic or lived up to that success. Like, we're just going to act like Yu-Gi-Oh! and Pokemon don't exist, right? Like, mm-hmm. um, But anyway, but everyone else was having a really good time with the game. Uh, the starter experience is really well tuned because all the games are meant to come down. Like you start at 20 life and almost every game I had uh, that I won, I was at one or two life when I did win. Right. So it's very back and forth. I had to leave early cause I had to kind of go to work early the next day. But what really struck me is Cameron, there were a lot of commander players at hmm. this, you know, this so-called, you know, unicorn of the casual player. That never is interested in anything competitive. They were at this event and learning it. So I'm not like well-equipped enough to know what about Flesh and Blood makes it relate so well to Commander players, but it was doing really well with that group of players. Mm-hmm. Um, so anyway, I just want to point out that like, that was my one card-playing experience. Um, I wasn't able to go out and play Friday night, um, but I am so excited for the pre-release this coming Friday. Like Cameron, you have no idea. I'm probably going to listen to the limited resources like at least twice. Yeah, man. To like learn all the cards. Um, but anyway, I want to take a break. I do want to come back and talk about both the Flesh and Blood GP that happened this weekend and some Midnight Hunt spoilers. We've actually talked a lot about the mechanics, but not about the individual cards. And boy, there's some good ones. So we'll be right back. All right, Cameron. So uh, just to kind of wrap up the Flesh and Blood conversation, how it relates to magic. So. Flesh and Blood had their big American GP this weekend. The Friday pre-release was like a thousand players. Their constructed event, and now keep in mind, constructed decks t- cost somewhere between a standard and modern deck, okay. right? So it's not nothing. Um, that was like around seven hundred players, and I guess I'm just a Magic player at heart because I watched this and I ached for a Magic event, like ached for it, dude. So I guess I'm just trying to hit you with this, like. A, how much have you missed large-scale magic events? Because we haven't been to one in forever. Oh, yeah. 
And B, would you be comfortable going to one? Like, just you personally. I'm not looking for your, mm-hmm. like, beliefs on crowded, <laughs> crowded environments or whatever. Yeah. But where are you at personally, man? Going to movie theaters, going to smaller magic events, totally okay, I think. Going to the larger magic events, um, I'm just kind of totally resigned to it. Like, I'm fine. I'm going, right? So that's where I'm at. Uh, dude, the, like, aching for a large-scale magic event, I absolutely agree to the point where like last week I just went into like the Star City archives and started watching some old legacy stuff just to kind of, I guess it was nostalgia, but like just watching to see how, you know, (laughs) Eldrazi was doing in 2017 or whatever. Like, you know, I mean, like really, really missing those types of magic events for sure. Yeah, and like you, maybe not like you, I don't know. Uh, I actually find myself learning a lot more by watching people play paper than when I watch like the Channel Fireball stuff where they do Arena or MTGO. Hmm. Like, which doesn't make a lot of sense because you can clearly see everything. <laughs> the rules text sure. and the players yeah. theoretically can describe everything, but there's something about watching the Star City events where you understand kind of more of the hidden information of the game. You don't have perfect information or why players do things. And I would also say that a lot of times when I'm watching somebody like LSV do his YouTube stream, I'm not remotely as good as he is, right? Mm -hmm. I can't process Mm -hmm. on the level he is. And it actually really helps me to process a player that's not explaining what's going on so I can make heads or tails of, okay, why did they make that attack? What were what were they thinking the opponent had? So like it forces me to operate on a different level, maybe get a little bit more mental exercise and try to approach that level. Whereas when I'm watching LSV, he's so much better than I am that a lot of times it's just like I kind of passively take in whatever his decision is mm. and go, yeah, this is definitely better than anything I would do. So <laughs> cool, you know. And uh, so there, I, I, I would also argue just having Cedric Phillips narrate how you're playing would probably make you a better player. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I've only been on camera once where I was commentated by someone else. That was in one of our St. Louis Lazy things, That's and I right, did go, yeah. ba- I did go back and watch it, and it was kind of hilarious because the commentary was so far off from what was actually happening. (laughs) And I don't know if it was just like we weren't doing a good job of like maintaining the board state for the camera or something, but there was a moment that I had clearly won. And I think it had to do with like, I was like, I was miracles and I can't remember what they were, but I had a Gideon in play. Okay. And basically they were out of cards. I was about to attack for the win and then the guy picks up his cards, and then someone comes storming out of the commentary booth. And they're like, we don't know what just happened. And so I go back and watch it, and like the whole match, they're just thinking I'm just dead dead to rights. And it was just really funny to see that disconnect. I don't yeah. think that would happen with Cedric Phillips or you know Pat <laughs> Sullivan or whatever. This was a much lower tier event. These guys are doing the best they could. I guarantee you their cameras weren't as good. Mm, uh, I, should, I should see if I could go find that archive if it still exists right yeah we should um yeah. anyway and i think i'm also on camera the next match and i just get destroyed like just, <laughs> um anyway yeah like for me and i and i've covered this before i've heard a lot of people say things like they wouldn't be comfortable going to a gp and i totally respect that 
Um, but I think there are a lot of people that are in situations like mine where, again, just because of our career field, we've been forced to be out in this all the time. Mm, right. Sure. And like the last calendar year was so intensely focused on my job, which I love. But it was like, OK, I, the, the, the pressure release valve that is magic did not exist for me. Yeah. And so it's kind of like you're asking me to like the culture, society, whatever is like saying, hey, you can do the thing that we're, you know, the work element of your life. But the thing that you, helps you relieve stress from this work, yeah, you can't do that. Are you crazy? <laughs> and it was just such a mixed message, and it was really hard to go through. And watching the Flesh and Blood event like stream on Twitch, man, has been incredibly powerful for me in that I don't know it. Like Whenever I started watching Star City and I was learning Legacy, and there were so many cards I was looking up that were in like gap years from when I wasn't playing or whatever, and it was... It just has those moments where I'm just like watching and absorbing, and it's so strong. Just like you know, these legacy matches that you talk about on Star City. Um, but please, please, please. I know Watsi has corporate interest, and they've got to be careful. I'm not criticizing them for not having events. I'm just ready for them to be back. It reminds me of the Wire, Cameron. All comes back to the Wire. It always comes back to the Wire. There's two gangsters named, one's named Avon and one's named Stringer, okay? And their relationship is kind of central to the first three seasons. And Stringer wants to become a businessman. And he keeps telling Avon, you don't need to be on the corners. You just need to invest, grow your money. There's bigger games than this. You do not need to do this anymore. And Avon looks at him and says, well, I'm just a gangster, I suppose, and I want my corners. That's how I feel about being a spike. It's like... You can tell me all this stuff is collectible. You can tell me there are secret layers. But, look, at the end of the day, I'm just a spike, and I want my tournaments, right? Yeah. <laughs> Everything like else is immaterial, you know? <laughs> um, th- I know there's, an over- there's a Venn diagram of, like, a dozen people <laughs> listening to this yes. that know the reference. It's a really important moment in that show. So <laughs> somewhere out there, there's somebody that's, like, mid-season two, and they're like, like what? What? <laughs> I'm sorry. Anyway, Midnight Hunt. It's looking good. It's got some good cards, and I'm leading off with what I think would be your favorite card from this. Mm. Why don't you read for for us Augur of Autumn? Yeah, Corsa of Kufra. I'm sorry, uh, Augur of Autumn. (laughs) Uh, It is a uh, creature with power toughness of 2-3, cost 1, green, green. You may look at the top card of your library anytime. You may play lands from the top of your library then Coven, as long as you control three or more creatures with different powers, you may cast creature spells from the top of your library. Um, so yeah, we have the Corsair effect essentially with being able to play lands from the top of your deck. Not nothing. I mean, Corsair was, I think, one of the most important cards from whatever set that was after Theros. <laughs> I can't even remember. Born of the Gods? Sure. We'll say the last one, one was Journey into Nyx. One of those two, right? But one of the best cards from that, whatever forgettable set that was. Uh, the Coven mechanic, which I was treating more like the party, um, this is really interesting with three or more creature types. Or I'm sorry, powers of creatures. That's really interesting. So something like Mono Green... We have a 1-1, one, one, a 2-2, two, two, and a 3-4 or 4-3 or whatever. 
feels like it fits really perfectly within this. And I mean, being able to just cast a land and or a creature spell from the top of your library, that's not nothing either. So I think this is like a home run across the board. Yeah, and I feel like this is the card that's the most that we have the most to talk about in terms of its utility because I think Uro put us in an unrealistic place for cards like this. Mm. Right? And it's easy to forget what Courser is and means to the format that it is was in and how good it was in standard. Um, because Oracle of Moldiah is kind of this cue ball star, but it was a two two for four mana. Courser is a two four for three mana that also gained you life in a format mm. where mana red was quite good. So there was just this element of all the things that it could do that was really strong. And I think this card has maybe a little less utility, right? Um, but, because I don't know how often the coven thing is going to happen, because it's like, if I have three different creatures on the board in a standard game, usually you're already winning. Mm-hmm. It, you know, so maybe standard gets so powered down that that's not the case anymore, but we don't s- tend to see standards with, you know, between the two players, six, seven creatures on the board. That just seems really uncommon. Sure. Um, but we also appear to be getting away from, you know, start your engine's magic where you kind of assemble a thing and kill your opponent all of a sudden, which has been very much a theme of the last, what, year and a half. So maybe this is more of a grind them out. You know, this is the kind of card that would have been good in Siege Rhino's era too, right? Like this mm-hmm. grind them out, I'm gaining this incremental advantage, and if you don't stop me, I'm going to essentially overwhelm you over the course of three or four turns. Um, good card, cool card, and this is the kind of card that I like to be good. Um, here's another one. And I don't... Again, this kind of points to a different style of magic. Vanquish the Horde. Six colorless, white, white. For a sorcery, this spell costs one less to cast for each creature on the battlefield. Destroy all creatures. So, the question is, how wide is the format? Um, I mean, what do you think, Cameron? Is it, what would be the threshold where this is playable for you? Um, I'm thinking of something like the black-white control deck that exists. Um, there's... You know, Wraths of Plenty, where we're using, um, uh, I can't remember, the the eight-mana Wrath with snow permanence that allows you to return a creature or a Planeswalker to the battlefield. Hugely important. That's really, really good. That kind of fits within this, where it's like, okay, I am using my one-ones, my Shambling Geists, and all this stuff to kind of create a defense, but now my opponent has too much on the battlefield and I'm going to get overwhelmed casting this for three might be pretty good you know so it fits kind of in a similar vein that i think the foretell wrath um doom foretold fits i think doom foretold is still going to be the more playable option but you know this feels like it might have some is it doom foretold i'm sorry not doom foretold wow you're you're thinking you're thinking of the one with foretold as an ability foretold Thank Doom you. Scar. Doom, Doom Scar. Scar. <laughs> Not Doom Synergy. Foretold. Doom Scar with the, <laughs> the card foretell. that has Foretell. Jeez. I'm sorry, listeners. Uh, yeah. Doom no, Scar. That was kind of Doom a nightmare, Scar. dude. I, now, whenever oh, dude. I started like disassembled that in my head, I was like, well, that is confusing, right? 
Um, yeah, Doomscar so, is still going to be more important, but I feel like this might have this might play into something like that black white control list. Right. And it's also worth pointing out like traditionally Innistrad has, you know, things where your creatures can come back, right? So they tend to be a little well, I mean there tend to be more wraths in this. There's a black enchantment that negs things. There's a red style wrath effect. There's this. So, you know, maybe be leery when you're playing sealed specifically. Uh, catching a wrath is uh, maybe more likely than normal. Mm-hmm. Um, all right, here's a weird one. Fateful absence. One in a white, for an instant, destroy target creature or a planeswalker. Its controller investigates. Now, here's why it's weird, Cameron, is instantly a lot of people automatically went to, hey, it's deck and stone. To me, this is, or they, were, they would say it's instant speed deck and stone. But the fact that this can hit planeswalkers and it's instant, like, I, I don't, I think it's much better than deck and stone. And like, this has a potential to be a format definer. Um, what do you think, dude? I I tend to agree. Um, I, I I I the only gripe I have is like I mean exile please instead of destroy. But I mean we're talking a planeswalker, like that means like in something like historic, we're hitting like to fairies. We're hitting you know Liliana's. I mean like some really big mana things that are sometimes very hard to deal with in a white based deck. I think, um, where now we have an instant speed removal. Also, an instant speed just destroy creature. That's not nothing. So, like, two mana, like, this is this is huge. This is really, really good. Yeah, and I don't know that it will jump into Pioneer or Modern, but it could as a some number of. I just think we've gone so far to the moon with like removal spell quality in specifically modern that this probably won't be what you want, right? Uh, what should we read for us the next one, dude? Yeah, we got a Rite of Harmony. Cost one and a, I'm sorry, a green and a white. It's an instant. Whenever a creature and enchantment enters the battlefield under their control this turn, draw a card, then it has flashback for two, a green and a white. Um... Oh, dude, this seems like it has potential for something like elves in historic. Um, casting this and then somehow being able to just generate an absurd amount of mana with elves seems like it could be really, really good where you're just refilling your hand for the next turn. Um, so that's where immediately my mind goes, but there's probably a lot of utility within some sort of like green white tokens deck that i'm not even thinking about right now yeah i think this card is actually quite dangerous in modern and historic um the degree to which people have written off glimpse of nature Mm -hmm. um or saying well you know now that you've added white it's way worse like the problem with the elves deck isn't so much the generating the mana right Mm -hmm. and keep in mind glimpse of nature is banned in modern and it has been from the outset so this is it is a card that would theoretically be legal in modern and make elves crazy good now you're talking about a turn later for comboing off 
I I think most of it, like Green Sun Zenith, is not legal, right? Mm-hmm. But like honestly, if you're a legacy or I'm sorry, a modern Els player, this is the piece that you've been missing, right? Like, um, it is incredibly powerful and good, and I, I'm stunned. Now, obviously, there's an Enchantress angle to this too. Sure, Enchantress traditionally hasn't played with instants in this spot because. You really want a quality, like, I should say a certain quantity and density of enchantments. Whereas whenever you're playing in in elves, you don't have to go as far off. Like, usually with enchantress, you have to, like, not just kind of go off, but, like, you know, draw 25 cards in a turn kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas elves, usually it's, I played elves and then a crater hoof behemoth, and then... There's actually no way for you to win. So I this is the one that my jaw's kind of on the floor, and I, I'm a little bit surprised. Uh, I know they've had, like, Beck and Call and some other kind of, like, halfway theirs, but that was, like, four mana. Mm-hmm. This is two mana, and when it goes, it's really going to go. So, uh, yeah, there's that. All right, last one. And I don't – I guess this is pronounced Liar. Disciple of the Drowned. Three blue, three blue, blue for a legendary human wizard. Spells can't be countered. Each instant and sorcery card in your graveyard has flashback. The flashback cost is equal to that card's mana cost. So this is five mana, no reduction if you're in storm. Uh, I'm being honest, purely looking at this from the perspective of a storm player. Okay. But this card is bananas if you can actually land it. Now, the cost is not nothing, but it's as much as a flashback past in flames. Like, mm-hmm. and by the way, in Legacy, this is even scarier because you can crack Lion's Eye Diamonds and all the cards in your yard have flashback and are uncounterable. So, like, not nothing, right? Like, you can't use the Lion's Eye Diamonds to cast the card, but you see sure. what I'm saying? Like, mm-hmm. that, that, uh, it's really amazing to me that this is also in existence, but maybe the high casting cost makes it safe-ish. What do you think? Yeah. If I'm looking at this from outside of the Storm player's perspective, um, which I'm Who sorry, cares? Curtis. Yeah. Who cares? Uh, no, if we're looking at this in the context of something like um, black, blue-black control or something like that, um, a deck that's really trying to net value maybe with the graveyard, there might be some sort of synergy happening with being able to bring creatures back out of the yard. I like this card. I like that it is uncounterable, which is going to give it a protection against a whole bunch of things in standard probably. Um, and this being able to flash back... Um, you know, any instant or sorcery within that uh, seems like it's pretty good. So um, I feel like wherever this card fits, if that's blue-red control, blue-black control in standard, um, it's a maybe. I don't know if it's a full role player or anything like that. So I want to take you back in time, Cameron. I'm going to put this card into chat. I doubt you're familiar with it because I think this saw modern play before you got to it. Draw new Lich Lord. Okay. And this was a an in-game for blue-black control in various formats. 
and it is worse in every single way. It's a five mana legendary zombie wizard that's a three three, and if it's dealt damage, you have to sacrifice that many permanents. And then you can tap it to give one instant or sorcery flashback until the end of turn. And this was like considered a super powerful endgame. Right? <laughs> Boy, have how have times changed. But right. you are so right, dude. Like just in straight up blue black esper control in standard landing this and oh look i've just re re-upped all my removal spells all my counter spells like it effectively drawing seven cards mm -hmm. now they might be able to kill it of course um but just landing it with mana up is really something uh <laughs> so yeah uh, i believe though wait it says spells cannot be countered right so that's for both players so, hmm. yeah, you would want to be okay. more in like, um, I'm like correcting this myself. You want to be more on the removal spell end of things, but sure. being able to replace your duresses or whatever, uh, pretty, pretty good. All right. So Cameron, are you pre-releasing this weekend? Oh yeah, man. Yeah. Friday. Or I'm sorry. I'll probably do the old guy flight. Uh, so, you know, Saturday at noon. <laughs> and then you'll get a text message from your wife about round three that you got to go. Right. Probably. No, no. <laughs> gotta hit dinner uh, at five o'clock. Yeah, yeah. You gotta get you gotta get the special before it like wraps up. You gotta get the uh the uh, sizzler even, senior special. <laughs> yeah. Do they even do matinees anymore at the movie theater or is that long gone? Oh, I'm sure I'm sure they still do. <laughs> uh all right, dude. Well let's get out of segment, come back and talk about what else we've been up to this week. All right, Cameron. So you've been playing a, a few more video games than me this week. And in a surprising twist, what have you been mm. up to? Yeah, so Bioshock, the whole complete collection with the remastered versions of one and two was like, you know, six bucks or something like that. So I went ahead and just bought the whole thing. I mean, I own them on like PlayStation 3 or whatever. But, like, the remastered versions, you know, you get a lock 60 frames per second on the PC. So that's what I'm doing right now is just going through the first Bioshock, downloaded the second one, and I'll play through that again as well. Um, and I'm reminded, much like Mass Effect, um, how incredibly important something like Bioshock 1 is to mm -hmm. that decade and kind of, like, what it pulled from and then kind of what it did for the future of game development and like that narrative type, um, that level design and how the narrative works for the future of games. Uh, you brought up in the pre-show, we were talking about prey, um, and how many elements of prey, um, you know, kind of fit within what, what Bioshock was doing. Um, and I mean, I know Bioshock was pulling from a lot of things, but I mean, you have a lot to thank for a game like that. That is over, what, 14 years old now? It's in that ballpark. Yeah, I think it was 07, the first 08. year of the 360. Yeah. So. Yeah. Um, and I mean, the game is starting to look a little dated here and there. I mean, it's kind of like looking at Halo 3, you know, or something like that, the 360 era stuff. Um, but like the level design there, the way that the story is being told through 
not only the 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 reels that they play so you hear the audio logs or whatever but just through the production design that they reveal um as you're walking this world of rapture is just like second to none it is so good and the like the the ambience and everything that 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 game kind of creates is just so good um yeah man like i i just if there's a listener out there who has never played a bioshock game um you have a pc or i'm sure like there's a collection available on xbox one or xbox one x right um i can't recommend it enough like it is something kind of like mario um halo these are like i think it's a very important game to play within the context of the history of video games um it's right up there with with mass effect in my opinion it's just so good yeah and i like we were talking on the pre-show i've never played two and i know that's the one that has like kind of the biggest variation of opinions i believe Mm -hmm. they're um re it's but there's another Bioshock in development, but there's also a System Shock in development, and I don't know how those <laughs> things work out. And like to your point, yes, there were things that were kind like System Shock came before Bioshock. These were all very PC centric. Bioshock mm-hmm. is the first one that like really made this a console playable experience. Yeah, take it from someone who tried to first play the first Deus Ex on PS2. <laughs> um, some of those things don't translate super well. And that was probably the most clear, okay, this is this really thoughtful experience. Like, when you're talking about Ayn Rand in the, con- in the context <laughs> of a video game, it was a huge leap, right? And it's also easy to forget how much, especially in that first year, I mean, 360 had Oblivion, Mass Effect, and Bioshock. <laughs> it's just, like, exclusive to them. Like, the, I, it was such an amazing spurt of titles that, like, I mean, we're still chasing those things, right? Like, yeah. we're still yeah. um, going after that. By the way, th- this is kind of apropos of nothing. Did you see that PS5 is getting a remake of the original Knights of the Old Republic? I did see that. I saw the trailer. A whole bunch of stuff for PlayStation, actually. But, yeah, that, that I think, specifically got me most excited. Yeah, I think that's because, I mean, I tried. I played the first years of Knights of the Old Republic, like, last year, I think. Uh, I've it's got the dated. original Xbox. Yeah, and it's dated. There's a lot of UI stuff and things like that that I'm sure, yeah, I am sure if I had a PC and I was willing to mod it, it would be fine. But I just like the idea of them really rejiggering that experience, and um, I hope they do well with it, you know? Mm-hmm. Whenever they throw around remake, remaster, boy, that can go a lot of different ways. <laughs> um, but we'll see. So uh, I actually just wanted to show up with a quick reading recommendation, but Cameron... Have you ever had one of those moments where you're like just 40 pages in and you're feeling pretty good about this? You feel comfortable recommending it? Yeah. Um, that's kind of where I'm at with this. So I did finish The Coward, that book I described as yeah. a peanut butter and jelly, warm blanket, fantasy novel that was really nice and brief and thoughtful and really good. But again, nothing outside of those bounds. Really like that. Would put that again like, hey. If you're ever looking for a hero's journey that that that's a good one um but this book i'm reading is called she who became the sun and it is a debut novel and i'm really unclear about this but there's some because look i don't know a lot about chinese history frankly and mm-hmm. this appears to be and i don't know if like there's a historical figure 
that they very loosely base Mulan off of, and this is very, like, it's some kind of, like, cross between a myth and a historical figure. And it is about a young girl who is starving to death, and she rises to the heights of becoming, you know, technically an emperor or empress. And um, the the first 40 pages have just blown my mind. Hmm. It is incredibly vivid and evocative, and I know nothing about this stuff. I know nothing about the original myth on this. I know it's a modernized take on this tale. Um, but wow. And I, I mean, I was fortunate enough to get on my library's wait list really quickly for this. Like, I got on the wait list for it like two months ago. But I can tell it's in demand because I was like one of like 30-some people on the list for this book. So I think there's real hype here. There's probably a lot of people out there that have already read it. I am kind of slowly chipping away at it, um, but so far, real good. <laughs> um, and again, I'm, I'm one of those people that I really get a kick out of maybe p- being put in an environment that I don't know, both in video games and in books. And in my mind, those two things are very similar experiences in that like, when I'm really dug in, I don't think about anything else. Like The catharsis is how much I'm put into it, and that's kind of why I hate TV because I'm never – all the way into what the television experience is, if that makes sense, unless mm-hmm. it's sports. So anyway, I know that was kind of deep dive, but She Who Became the Sun, really impressive. I believe it's the author's debut novel. And nice. I should pull it up so I can say her name. Shelly uh, Parker Chan. Oh, nice. You were Googling in the background, Cameron. Oh, yeah. I like it. Yeah. Um, and, I, and I'm not doing the audiobook, so I don't know how... Um, Good it is. I see though that whenever I punch it in, it is Oprah Magazine's one of Oprah's most anticipated novels. So that would be explained why I'm one of 30. Once, on the- once again, the Venn diagram of Spike Feed listeners and Oprah Book Club listener supported thing. There's like probably 10 people there. We're really hitting the nail on the head. Yeah. Yeah, dude. <laughs> Oprah's on, you know? Um, I just made a reference that almost no one got from a commercial about Oprah. All right. Uh, If you have any questions about Oprah Winfrey's Winfrey's career, pre her daily show retirement, uh, where could they find you, Cameron? (laughs) Twitter at Cameron underscore McCoy. And I'm Curtis Now. Our official show beat is at SpikeBeatMTG. We will check you guys next week.